Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different, where we aspire to have real dialogues, not edited interviews with some of the amazing people who are making our world a different place. And we have one of my favorite people on planet Earth today, legendary writer Dushka Zapata. Yes, she's back. And if you're a regular listener, um, you know exactly who she is. And if by chance this is your first time listening to this oddcast, um, this is a great place to start because Dushka is uh, a prolific and one of the most consumed writers on planet Earth. And this is a stunning conversation. We're sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. That's netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about my friends at Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K. They are the leader in big data, and they bring data to every question, every decision, and most importantly, every action. If you want to leverage the power of data in your business, go to Splunk, S-P-L-U-N-K.com today. All right, Dushka Zapata. Um, I think Dushka is one of the most important writers working in the world. She's definitely one of the most prolific writers in the world because she writes uh, virtually every day. We actually talk about that a little bit um, if I remember on, on this, in this discussion, she was our first ever guest and she has appeared more often on this podcast than anyone else. Her work has been consumed on question and answer site Cora 140 million times. Um, her most recent book is also awesome. Uh, it's called You Belong Everywhere and Other Things You'll Have to See for Yourself. We have a powerful, fun I would even describe it as life-affirming conversation. We talk about things like mending broken hearts, why grief is actually worse when you're young, why discipline matters for being creative. And I think you're also going to love the part where Dushka talks about the importance of having the mind of an amateur. Go to Lockhead.com for more on Dushka. And now, hey-ho, let's go. I think we want to, we want what we do to mean something. And sometimes we think it does. And sometimes we think it doesn't. And I think that that's, I think that that's a very intimate thing for me to tell you, but I also think that any intimate thing I could tell you is a universal human condition, hmm. which by the way, I wanted to read you something because when we talk, we've agreed that I will pick something to read you. And I, was not directing this conversation at all. I was sort of chatting with you and I just realized that what I'm talking about is actually exactly what I want to read you. So I'm going to do that next. Ready? I'm ready. Okay. Um, <clears throat> last week I attended a big crowded yoga class. The teacher began by saying that for many people, yoga is a healing practice that he wanted to dedicate the class to this an effort directed at mending what was hurt, sprained, wounded, or broken. This can be a physical injury, he said, or a non-physical one like sorrow, anxiety, or loneliness. In this class, pay special attention. Take care of yourself. Be loving towards yourself. And send particular care towards whatever you think needs to heal. Now, place both hands on where that place is for you, and let's take a few deep breaths together. At this point, I sneak a peek. I open my eyes and slowly pan the room. I would say that 97% of the people in the room had placed both their hands over the left side of their chest. So this is what I want everyone to know today. 
tread very carefully as you move through the world. Think twice about what you plan to say and do, because pretty much everyone you come across is desperately trying to mend a broken heart. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The whole class. Yes. I mean, I'm talking about a little under a hundred people. Yeah. I just find that astounding. I think that whenever we suffer, part of the lie in the suffering is that we are suffering alone, that we have existential angst alone, or that we wonder if what we're doing has meaning alone, or that we are heartbroken alone. And I feel like if we look back and if we look up and pan the room, we would see that everyone is going through similar things. Yeah. And if they're not, they have. And if they're maybe a younger person who hasn't yet, they will. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like grief is not really related to youth. I actually think that the younger you are, the more confusing things are because you don't know that you can survive them. Um, I remember the first time that I broke up with someone that was important to me. Um, part of the reason I was suffering so much is because I didn't think that it was ever going to end. Like I actually thought I would never love again. And now when I go through any form of heartbreak, I mean, a breakup or otherwise, I know that I just need to hold on, you know, that feelings as, as, as much as we believe that they are the, the true thing, feelings are temporary and they're fleeting. And the fact that you really, all you need to do is hold on because whatever it is that you're feeling is temporary. And I think that when you're very young, you suffer through a lot of things and you have no idea that it's actually going to end. So I would argue that grief is worse when you're young. That's fascinating. Because when you're young, you don't know it's going to end. And so therefore, you have, I'm trying to sort of think out loud how this goes. Uh, you're having this horrible feeling, this horrible heartache. It's a, it's a love breakup. Your grandparent just died. Whatever it is, right? Yeah, whatever and, it is. And we think we're going to feel like this. And we're 14 or 16. And we think we're going to feel like this forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And look, let me just... Let me make it a lot simpler than that. Um, let me, let me, um, when I'm very cold, I just don't believe that I'll ever be warm again. Like, forget about heartbreak. When I'm hungry, I think, I, I just, I, I don't think that I will ever not feel hungry. We, we actually believe that our suffering is going to last forever and nothing lasts forever. Actually, I have, I've, I've written about this. I, I don't remember if I've read this on another conversation with you, but I'm going to read it again because it's exactly what we're talking about. And it's about a, 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 um, a guy who writes into Quora to say that he wants to marry his girlfriend and he's really young. So the question is, I'm 16. I love my girlfriend and I want to marry her. We've talked about this. Is this too soon? Do you think I should wait until I finish high school? And so this is my answer. When I fall in love, I just know that I will love you forever. I don't think I have enough time in my life to love you as long as I want to. I don't think I have enough space on this whole planet to be with you. We will need to find our own empty planet to inhabit. You and me and my incorrigibly excessive intergalactic love. When I'm injured or hurt, I just know. I know I will not recover and my life will never be the same. And I don't even believe how many things I once took for granted before the time this hurt so very much. When I have a big meal and I'm full, so full, I just know I will never eat again. Food is just ugh and I don't know why it plays such an important role in our lives when there's so much else to focus on besides delicious things. When I'm cold, cold to the bone, I can't imagine a scenario where I will ever not feel cold. How is it that at one time I felt not frozen? Look, I believe how you feel. I believe you believe. And you, good for you, will refuse to believe me. 
and will be horrified when I say this. And you will feel betrayed and like no one understands. But feelings, real and deep, change. Feelings change. And the fact that they do is what breaks me. And the fact that they change is what saves me. And it will save you too. I love you, Dushka. <laughs> It'll change, Christopher. <laughs> well, if by change you mean it gets... Um bigger and bigger. wider every time we talk, then, then I will happily agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I accept that. Uh, and so I do want to get to the substance of that, but it's right in my face. So maybe you'll give me permission. Yeah. How I do you write that? How does that writing happen? You read that question and then what happens? I, ju I just get hit by what I want to say. And when I was 16 and I was in love, I thought that it was forever. When I was 40 and I was in love, I thought it was forever. And feelings lie to us. Our thoughts lie to us. I think that the secret to happiness is to disbelieve what you think and what you feel. To look at it and say, you know, it, part, of, part of this may be true, but not all of this is true. And I think a lot of what makes us suffer are things that come out from inside of us that we think are forever or that we think are absolute truth. And that's almost never the case. And I only say almost because I don't like being categorical, but really that's not ever the case. Yeah. So I get the thinking, but from a practical, tactical perspective, do you, do you start writing? Do you map out what you think you want to say? Does it just flow out of your finger? Is there, yeah, I, I how think many edits are there? Like, how does it work? How does the, how does that douchkiness how do you get into, first of all, that state where that shit just seems to flow out of you? Like there's just this, and it's, it's so unique to you. There's nobody that writes like you. And so, so I, I, just, I want to understand how it happens. Um, so I, I think whenever I have something to, fa fa to say, I feel a sense of urgency. So if I look at a question, I like really need to answer it right now. And I write and usually what I want to say is already organized in my brain. I don't, I don't do outlines or first drafts and I actually don't do a lot of editing. I do a little bit of editing, but not a lot. But it's also true that it depends on the day and it depends on the question. Sometimes I write an answer to a question and I think it doesn't sound right or I think that there's a discrepancy between what I wanted to say and what I actually said, um, which is really frustrating because it's very difficult to bridge. And sometimes I have something in my brain and it's kind of abstract and I write it down and I look at it and I go, yes, it, this is exactly what I wanted to say. And that feeling is the best, but it, it just depends. And, you know, I have really bad days where I look at something and I go, nothing inspires me. I don't want to answer anything. I don't care. I don't really want to write today. And that those are the days that um, I count on the fact that I'm disciplined rather than inspired, which I think is the secret to anything. I think that I don't think there is such a thing as motivation. I think that you just do it because you say that you you said that you were going to do it every day. I just. I've taken notes as you're talking. You said something about discipline versus inspired. Can you yeah. go deeper on that for me? So yeah, I, I, I think people, I, I hear all the time, um, I'm not motivated. And I think that if I only wrote when I was motivated, I think that I would maybe write a couple of times a year. I think that it's about discipline. Um, any form of creation, which is pretty much the reason for our existence, what, what we're here, we're here to create. What, it doesn't matter what. We're here to create families and companies and, and children and books and 
music and you know we we are here to create and categories and <laughs> sorry I exactly. categories anything anything you want we are creators we are at our i mean if someone says i'm not creative i'm like you just you don't understand you're not defining the word broadly enough we are creators that that is why that is what we're here to do and what 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 calls you to create is not motivation you have to be disciplined i um i i can point to the times that i have seen people with there's no shortage of talent in the world. What there is, is a shortage of a will for people to say, I'm going to, you know, writers, for example, to say, I'm going to, you know, grab, drag my ass to that chair and sit down and write. And that is what, what you, what, that is the struggle. And the amount of times that you make up excuses so that you don't write. So I, you know, I think work is an excuse. I'm so busy at work and I'm doing such important things at work or the laundry that's never going to get done. My God, look at the dishes in the dishwasher and my brain just can think of any possible thing to write. And that's a big part of the reason I wake up every morning to write. You know, I, I, I write every day, rain or shine, no matter what, from 4.30 in the morning to 7. And that way, I have no excuse. I I can't tell myself that the day got away from me or that somebody needed me or that I had an emergency or that the laundry needed to get done or that I needed to work on whatever that I was doing for work between four 30 and seven, I sit down and I write and there's no excuses. And that's, that's how you write a book. And that's how you write more than one book. And that's how you create things by making room for them and accepting no excuses. But, it, but, but that's the secret. It's not inspiration. It's discipline. And do you take, Sunday off or, or no, I don't take any day off. You know, there's no day off from writing. No. Go writes every day. Yes. I write every day to seven. Yeah. I write every day from four 30 to seven, but also there, there is so much there. There is so much magic in the world. There is so there is magic swirling over your head right now. Um, let me, let me read this to you. Um, this is, this is about, I'm going to read this to you and then I will come back to the subject of magic. Um, here it is. I'm going to try to explain something unexplainable. My hope is that you take my word for it. I have written seven books. The first time I ever wrote one, I obviously had never written one before, so I had no idea what I was doing. I fumbled and goofed, and there it was, book number one. In writing this book, I learned a little bit about how to write one, so I could make the second one better. And the second one taught me something about the next one, and so on. But here's the esoteric part. Every time there is a system, a process that I can explain and outline, but in each one, there is also pixie dust, something that makes things come together in a way that I cannot take credit for. 30% of the effort happens on its own without my intervention. Magic. Seeing this is so dazzling that I sit back and gasp. My books are the work of a starry-eyed amateur, not a professional. We can sit and discuss their flaws for hours. But also, there is something about each book that is really beautiful, that came together on its own. This is my favorite part about creating something from nothing. I am a witness to this ineffable thing that no one can really detect. No one on earth. Just me. This is why I will always be in the middle of writing a book. Please, please go create your thing. Awesome. And so what I'm saying is that there's magic all around us and we can't really tap into it until we see what it does for us. And we can't see what it does for us if we don't show up for it and make it a priority and make space for it and breathe air into it. And to do that, we need to eliminate every excuse and we need to eliminate everything that comes between us and whatever it is that we are creating. It means that I say no to my friends sometimes so that I have time to write. It means that I can't go out drinking because I can't wake up at 4.30 if I'm super hungover. And it means that I um, want to go to bed early because I need to get up early. And if, if, you, if you really want to do something, you find a way to remove the excuses. 
And that is creation. It is not inspiration. I mean, inspiration will visit you every once in a while and you're like, oh my God, please come in. Wow, this feels amazing. But that is not every day. That is not what is going to produce a book or a sculpture or a piece of art in the middle of the desert or a good marriage. It's, it's just showing up every day whatever, for whatever you're creating. And so why is it you think when many of us hear the word discipline, we hear a not fun word? Um, I, I think there's as many answers to that as there are people. I think mostly we make excuses because we are afraid of failing when we do create something. Like if I put my heart into something and I put my soul into something, and I put my time into something and I remove all of the excuses, what if it sucks? And I think people are afraid of that. And aren't they also afraid of what if 147 million people read it? Maybe. I don't ever think that. I, I, it never occurs to me. And that's why I'm not afraid of it. But I think, yeah, for sure, sometimes our, the, the possibility that we might be good is equally scary. Uh, you know, I don't know. Let's maybe play with this for a second. But there's part, let, let me, I don't know if this is true. Who the hell knows? But there's part of me that wants to say many of us are more uh, uh, afraid of the success. And I don't know if that's a cliche, but um, it is something extraordinary when you crush it. Right. And everybody knows you did. Right. It sort of reminds me a little, what was that movie with um, Hugh Grant and um, she's a giant famous American actress. Julia Roberts. Is it Nob Hill? Yeah. Yeah. And there's that scene at the dinner table where they're all sort of trying to compete for who has the worst life and they sort of get to her and they sort of expect her not to play and she says, hey, wait a minute, I get to play too. And she talks about how, you know, all the terrible things about being a giant successful actress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think that, I think that that may be true. I think some of us are scared to do really well and some of us are scared to fail and some of us are just scared. I think fear is a very real thing. But I think that the way to tackle it is the way that you tackle anything, which is just a tiny little bit at a time. You, you chisel away at it. And that is really what discipline is because I don't get up in the morning and write a book. I get up in the morning and write a few pages, sometimes a few pages that I just throw out. Um, but anything that you need to tackle can be done a little bit at a time. So whatever it is that you want to do, whatever, run a marathon, um, improve on your marriage, uh, learn to surf, learn Japanese, write a book, anything is really done ha- half an hour at, at every day or whatever, an hour a day, 10 sentences a day, what, whatever feels doable to you. And that, I just, is, that is the difference between you and getting something done is just getting up and doing it a little bit each day. And it is interesting how um, daily incremental movement creates exponential movement over time. It, that is so interesting. It, it, to me, practice is a superpower and it changes everything. And practice in, in, in every sense of the word. I mean, you can practice yoga, you can practice um, a lot of the things that we feel we are, are really just habits that we have ingrained. So insecurity is a practice. Jealousy is a practice. Um, uh, you know, decisions that we make about the way that we are. I don't know. I'm super insecure. I don't know. I'm very possessive. 
I don't know, I tend to be territorial. All of these things are just things that we've reinforced through practice that we can undo in the same way. You know, it's interesting. Uh, recently, I was in a boxing class and I haven't been doing a lot of boxing um, this year because I injured my knee at the beginning of the year. And so I've been sort of erratic um, as I sort of try to deal with it. Anyway, long story longer, I'm in this boxing class with a boxing coach I haven't seen for a while. And uh, he's giving an instruction. And I, I, like the other folks in the class, I'm executing the instructions. And then he comes up to me and he goes, oh, he said, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for that. Uh, I forgot you're at an advanced level. I, you, I shouldn't be starting you here. Let's talk about what you should do in this class. Something mm-hmm. to that effect. And it struck me, I don't feel like I've been boxing all that long. And here's a guy who's a professional fighter and a professional coach making this comment. And, and, and so it sort of knocked me over. And so I guess my point is, you know, it doesn't feel like in the, the span of a lifetime that I've been doing this very long. And yet, to your point, with disciplined application over a few, few years, you get that evaluation, one that is surprising to you. I'll, I'll, let me take it in the other direction. Do you know what the concept of Shoshin is? I do not. I think that's what it's called. Um, I'll, I'll see if I can look up the name. I think that that's what it is. I'm, I'm not sure. But anyway, it is beginner's mind, the cultivation of a beginner's mind. So it's the assumption that you are always uh, inexperienced, that you don't know. Um, um, and it, what it means is that when you come at things, you come at them a lot more openly because assuming that you are an expert or that you're good at something actually closes you off. So if you want to have a completely open mind and really learn and really absorb all of the things around you, it's about not knowing more than it is about knowing. So if someone is talking and so a part of your brain is like, ah, I already know that, then you're closed to learning something new. So the cultivation of a beginner's mind and the assumption that you're always an expert and that you don't know is what keeps you open. And, and one of the reasons, one of the two reasons I call myself an amateur, that is why um, my handle is Dushka Amateur at, and on social media and why I call myself an amateur writer. Yeah, it's interesting. And you know, to be clear in this story, it was not I who said that, it was him who said that. Yeah, um, exactly. but I mean, you saying I'm actually going to start at the beginning or wanting to start at the beginning is one of the big secrets to happiness. No, he started off by saying, um, now let's practice our jab and teach yeah. you how to throw a jab. I was like, okay, great. Teach me how to throw a jab. <laughs> I've yeah. thrown a couple. That's okay. Yes. I, yeah. And so there is a thing in martial arts about the white belt mind, right? You always want to, yes. you always want to be a white belt. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. I, I think that's really beautiful. And then I think that I've mentioned this in other shows, but um, amateur, the word amateur the etymology of amateur is lover, amatore. And it means mm. someone, who, someone who is motivated by love rather than money. And I feel like I do things because I love them more than because I'm getting paid for them. And that's the other reason I, I, I call myself an amateur. Yeah, the other thing I love about you, Dushka, is it feels like, you'll tell me, um, you're not somebody who spends a lot of time comparing yourself to other people. Yeah, I think that that's true. I, I don't, I don't think that that. I mean, sometimes it's really hard not to, but I would say that it's really not something that happens to me very often. 
Yeah. I think that the best bellwether of how I'm doing or what I want or what I, I, I think that the best bellwether for me is myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the other thing I'm curious to ask you about, how, how long has it been since you went back to the corporate world? Um, it has been, I'm going to say about three years, which okay. is kind of unbelievable because it feels like we just talked about the fact that I wasn't a part of the corporate world. Yeah, I know. And I, it, the, that went by fast. <laughs> I know. Exactly. And so here's this curious thing. I mean, before you were a solopreneur, and of course, before you were a senior executive in the corporate world, so it's not like you're, you haven't been here. But the thing that is materially different now than it was when we met, you didn't have this gigantic uh, life as a writer um, when you and I met. You might have been writing. I don't know. You might have had your blog then. But you sure as shit weren't the Dushka Zapata that you are today in turn, you know, on Cora and beyond. And so I just want to ask you, you know, we all grew up or many of us grew up in a world where we were taught to be professional, that we had our work life and our personal life and we shouldn't mix, you know, business and pleasure and we shouldn't have, you shouldn't do business with friends and, and you sort of almost were instructed to develop a business persona, professional persona and um, you know, your colleagues wouldn't see this or that about you or see you dressed a certain way or doing a certain thing or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There was, the, there was a division between uh, who we really were in our professional life. And of course, I don't know that you ever um, uh, were swayed by any of that thinking. You'll tell me. Mm-hmm. But you have this massive life as a writer where you write about deeply personal stuff and you're a very senior executive that works on the most strategic things in the company at a very successful, large, publicly traded technology company. How does all that work? Okay, so that's a lot of questions. Let me start at the beginning. So first, I have never, ever been able to fragment myself and be different things to different people. I've never been able to do that. I have never been like a professional persona and then a personal persona and dress differently. for Like, I've never done that. I, I was part of the time. There was a time where I was given that advice and I've always had friends that are coworkers. I've, I've, I married a coworker. Um, I was married to him for 15 years. We worked together and lived together. And then we got a divorce and went right straight through the divorce. We kept working together. Um, I have never been worried about anyone finding anything about me that I wouldn't talk about myself. Um, I, I just never feel like that is necessary. And I feel like secrets are a form of isolation. And I feel like every time I have one, because I have had them, and sometimes there's periods of time where I I don't want to talk about certain things. And I just feel like secrets are incredibly isolating. And the more I talk about what I go through, two things happen. One is the more I realize other people have gone through it too. And, and two, um, uh, I realize that I feel lighter when I talk about the things that I feel. So I think that that's just what I do. I've never really considered splitting the two. And then regarding my writing life, I, th- I feel like there's this like microcosm of the world where people know that I write and they uh, know me as a writer. And I think that I have a- another microcosm of the world where I move through the world and go to yoga and work. And those two don't, don't frequently uh, overlap. Um, so they it's almost like my writing world exists in its own 
in its own special bubble. And ever so often I run into people who recognize me, which is super trippy. Um, I, I'm walking down Valencia Street in San Francisco and someone will walk up to me and ask me if I'm the person who writes on Quora. And that just makes me super happy. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't really think about one when, when I'm doing the other. I, it's not that I set it aside or anything. It's just that we are all more than one thing. We are multidimensional and complicated and we, we're, we're all infinite, all of us. So I, those two things almost never come together at the same time. I, I, I never think, oh, I'm going to go to this meeting when really I'm a writer and I am writing a book. Like I, I just sort of get my writing done in the morning and then go on through my day and not really, don't really think about it. But do you ever go into a meeting um, and sort of realize that, you know, if you're in a bigger meeting that some of the people in the meeting are reading you or have read you or, you know, it, it, or if I was going to meet you, if I was going to sell to you, doing homework on you would be easy because I would Google you and then I would discover all this stuff. And yeah, I um, mean, there's, I there's great, this whole douche. I mean, you can spend a lot of time in the douche rabbit hole. I, yeah, but I feel like it would be very, um, it would be very self-absorbed of me to assume that anyone was that interested. I, I, I just think that people are way more interested in themselves than they are in me. I don't think... I really don't think anything revolves around me. So I would be surprised if someone had like show, showed that level of interest. Hmm. I bet you they are and you don't realize it. I mean, sometimes someone will say uh, something like really surprising. Like for example, someone in the office will walk up to me and say, um, I don't know, my father died and you really helped me through my grief through your writing or something like that. That makes me so happy that anything that I went through was put to good use like that. But I don't really think anyone would like read everything about me or anything like that. Hmm. See, the two worlds do not connect. That's what they, you they connect sometimes in like brief flashes of beauty because it's fantastic when someone sees me, like all of me in, 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 in the office, but typically we all worry about different things throughout the day. And you know, those two don't come together. Interesting. Anything else you want to touch on my love? No, I think that that was fantastic. I always love talking to you. And I, like I, exactly like my writing, I never think that anyone else is listening. So this, this conversation was no exception. <laughs> Dushka, you're a giant gift in my life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And have a fantastic day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. There she is, my favorite feel-good writer on planet Earth, Dushka Zapata. I sure hope you love that conversation. Now, as you know, Family-owned businesses are the lifeblood of the economy. However, these businesses face challenges with things like um, managing uh, their accounts and inventory and and critical parts of their business. And, you know, as small family-owned businesses grow, they can can end up getting sort of lost in a, a, a mountain of spreadsheets and having to do spreadsheet kung fu or creating invoices with Word documents and Uh, hosting websites on different internet sites and having ad hoc out of control processes and disparate systems. And, you know, in the beginning, you just sort of do what you need to do to get it done. But then as the company grows, you might find yourself with little visibility into your operations and poor reporting because you got disparate systems and ad hoc stuff going on all over the place. And so family businesses need to focus on growth and making better decisions. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in with NetSuite you will uh, not have to struggle with invoices or uh, reconciling missing orders or dealing with spreadsheet kung fu. 
NetSuite is the platform for growth. It's a complete business management system, and it's in the cloud. It provides family-owned businesses with a way to grow and thrive and adapt by ensuring that good decisions get made across everything in your business by handling key processes like invoicing, billing, collecting, very important on the collecting, (laughs) accounting, customer service, inventory, and dealing with complex data across multiple locations and even multiple countries. That's why NetSuite is the platform for growth for family-oriented businesses, family-owned businesses, and they're offering you, as a listener of this podcast, a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out my friends at NetSuite at netsuite.com slash different today to set up your growth review. That's netsuite.com slash different. And if you want to uh, get in touch with us, go to lockhead.com. Uh, there you'll be able to find information about every episode of Follow Your Different and our prior uh, prior name, uh, Legends and Losers. Every episode is up there. And you can check out our new marketing podcast, Lockhead on Marketing. It's all there or anywhere you want to pick up legendary uh, podcasts. If you must send us email, you can at blackhole at lockhead.com. And you can check out my week social media game on Twitter and um, uh, Instagram at Lockhead. And I'm just Christopher Lockhead um, in um, LinkedIn if you want to check me out there. All right. We would like to thank the incredible, the amazing Dushka Zapata. Um, she's got uh, seven or eight awesome books. Check out You Belong Everywhere and other things you'll have to see for yourself. Um, my good friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one LifeFullyLive.org. GrowWire.com. It's what legendary growth-oriented folks are reading today. There's a YouTube channel up there. There's an awesome podcast. Check out GrowWire.com today. And if you want to scale yourself, why not think about the power of a virtual assistant and my good friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance at bottleneck.online. And if you're a thought leader looking to get your leading thoughts on leading podcasts, my friends at Interview Valet are who you need. Check out interviewvalet.com if you want to get on top podcasts. And the amazing folks at the Front Row Foundation. Check out frontrowfoundation.org. Making a difference to people who are literally staring down the toughest thing we're all going to have to face, which is the potential of the end of our life. And I'll tell you, if you want to make a difference for somebody, make a difference for somebody facing that uh, situation. And it's incredibly profound. The Front Row Foundation. Org. All right, I need to remind you that this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain disturbed. We must warn you that clearly this podcast is produced in a studio that does contain nuts. Uh, practice your writing skills. Never forget that a massive disadvantage can become an unfair competitive advantage. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Did you know in the United States, in many states, it is actually illegal to go slowly on the highway? <laughs> Listen to the legendary Leonard Cohen. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mum and Dad. And hey, Colin, this podcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky, we just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Uh, it means the world to me. Stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.